Gulag Archipelago, Cancer Ward, The Life of Ivan Denisovich. The wise and prophetic Russian literary Alexander Solzhenitsyn shares countless writings that cut to the core of our existence. Few of them are put so succinctly as this. The purpose of life is not worldly riches and the creature comforts they can purchase. Such trinkets can never satisfy the needs of the soul. The purpose of life is to grow in wisdom, to mature into the fullness of what it means to be human. The problem is that most of us are quite happy remaining comfortably numb, wasting our lives on trash and trivia, distracting ourselves to death long before we actually die. We are all in danger of growing old without growing up, which is the greatest tragedy that can beset any of us. It's for this reason that suffering is such a blessing. It brings us to our senses. It's a reality check. It reminds us that we are not gods, that we are not immortal. It cuts us down to size. So what do we do with words like this? Give casual assent, say, wow, he's right, and move on to our next distraction or purchase? This reality check not only brings our mortality home to us, but it's also a stark reminder of the distractions our Western society incessantly feeds us. Solzhenitsyn also writes the following, decades prior to the toxic state we now find ourselves in. We hear a constant clamor for rights, rights, always rights, but so very little about responsibility. And we have forgotten God. The need now is for selflessness, for a spirit of sacrifice, for a willingness to put aside personal gains for the salvation of the whole Western world. Welcome to the 6-8 Culture Podcast, an international community where we share stories of transformation and restoration from the inside out, based on justice, kindness, and humility. Come journey with us. I'm your host, Rob McKinley. Today's guest has released these trinkets Solzhenitsyn refers to and has embraced the journey of what it means to be human. His career trajectory started at age 10 after a life-altering experience witnessing a bank robbery. He served with the RCMP for a total of 10 years and left the position at a young age due to being scarred from some experiences in the force. Subsequently, he faced PTSD and various addictions as a result. After coming to faith in 2014, he traveled to Southeast Asia, where he encountered many opportunities to put his faith into action. I had the privilege of meeting him in Cambodia in 2016. He returned to Canada, but knew he would soon be back. Since 2018, he's called Cambodia his home and now dedicates his life to going to some of the poorest and harshest environments to advocate for victims of child trafficking. His work is through an organization called Extreme Love Ministries, where he oversees a small team of young Cambodians who seek to intercept victims of human trafficking after they have been taken or sold from their families, but before they end up in exploitation. Some stories are horrific, but in his words, 
Even with the challenges that come with it, the love they share toward me often teaches me how to love, how to have patience, and further fuels the passion I have to seek justice for the vulnerable. Zach Koftanoff, such a pleasure to welcome you to the Six Eight Culture Podcast. Thanks, Rob. It's an honor, really, to be here with you and really great to follow you on this journey and just to be listening to others. It's an honor, truly. Thanks, Zach. And likewise, for your journey, I've been following it now for four years. And thank you for joining us. You've got a really compelling journey to share. So let's start early on in your life. Tell us a little bit about when you were 10 and how that experience set your career direction. Yeah. When I was a young boy, I was obsessed with police, ambulances, and fire trucks. I actually had a carpet in my bedroom, which was a landscape of a city. And I would always (laughs) buy Hot Wheels cars and have car chases and pull cars over and do all sorts of things with the emergency vehicles. I don't know where that obsession came from. But one day when I was 10, my mom and I were just spending time together and we went to a bank that we've gone to many, many times. And it was a busy day. And I just remember a man running through the door jumping over the counter and pushing all the ladies away and shouting a whole bunch of things. And just as fast as he came in, he disappeared. And my mom was kind of stunned and I wasn't really sure what was happening. But the next few minutes, it was just quiet. And suddenly five, six, seven police officers showed up with their cars and their lights and came running through the door. And in an instant, I knew I was gonna do that. Wow. Were you scared or were you thrilled? A little bit of both. I could feel there was fear in the air. People didn't know what was going to happen. But at the same time, there was this rush of internal things happening in me that I didn't really understand at the time. And when the police officers show up, I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to perhaps get rid of this feeling of fear for other people or do something to help these types of situations. And if I'm being totally honest, I loved the whole idea of the police car and driving fast and doing really fast paced kind of adrenaline Hmm. things. It just launched me into that idea and I couldn't shake it for, well, for 11 years until I was hired as a police officer. I knew exactly what I was gonna do and I lived my life accordingly. So you were in the RCMP for your 20s, so I guess it was around age 21. How has that shaped your approach to life today? Justice, compassion, empathy? Do you have any stories that really impacted you during your time with the police? Yeah, it was very interesting. I actually spent two years in my hometown volunteering with the police because I couldn't wait to start doing the job. So I started policing when I was 19 and right out of high school, I joined the volunteer force and I ended up actually policing and interacting with people that I had graduated high school with. So that was a very interesting overlap. And because of that, I continued to sort of fuel this obsession with, I want to do more, this isn't enough. As a volunteer, I didn't have the same ability to really affect change and to bring things up, say with management or with the community leaders. And so I knew I had to do more. When I joined the RCMP officially in 2008, and got hired, they sent me out to Surrey right away. So I was from BC, I went back to BC right before the Olympics. And that process started with adrenaline-fueled TV-style drama in Surrey. 
Right. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with Surrey, it's a suburb of Greater Vancouver, and it's the largest RCMP police detachment in the country. Yeah, that's right. There's around 1,000 or 1,100 police officers in Surrey. And the population that we served was similar to Greater Vancouver, around 800,000 to about a million. And that process of starting police work, I was so new and thought I could change the world. And I, in fact, actually tried to change the world, which led me to kind of go to a lot of the big, serious, dramatic calls for service Mm -hmm. that would most likely capture the public's attention. So very public type of interactions that people would be drawn to. I quickly learned I really had no impact in the world, little or no impact, I could say. In the grand scheme of what my heart was saying is that I wanted to change the world for the better. But yet day after day, there was no change. And I sort of felt like a firefighter just putting fires out Mm. and not really making a dent in this evil side of the world that I was becoming aware of. Hmm. Some of the things that really impacted me when I was starting out was the loss of innocence and the true vulnerability of humans when encountering evil or when encountering challenging times. And the things that really struck me deep were times when innocent or unsuspecting people were victims of really heinous crimes. Those were very challenging for me to get over and being able to be part of the change or part of the positive side of their story was good. However, I really couldn't understand why everything was happening. I experienced many of those types of calls for service where innocent, unsuspecting people, for example, homeless people, disabled people, the elderly population or seniors, or even just a person driving their car innocently, having their life really flipped upside down for no good reason. And those really impacted what I thought about the world and how I thought I could actually affect change in the world. Mm, How did you process that? How did you work through that when you see so many innocent and vulnerable people being impacted through no reason of their own? And then you have to go and process this, differentiate for yourself so you don't take on all those problems. What was the process that you worked through on that? That was a really interesting, challenging place for me because I came into policing quite young and I had the mindset of, I'm a hero, I'm invincible. Many times I drove too fast, I took too many risks. Add that adrenaline side of things onto encountering real human tragedy. And I would go home at night and really not process. I would process some of the thoughts and feelings with friends or coworkers, sometimes with family. But I would also process it with my coworkers, who at that time, some of the management would encourage us to drink alcohol and cope in really unhealthy ways. So as a young guy, I just sort of jumped on board with what everybody else was doing as I thought was the best thing. And that led to me working as a police officer for four or five days in a row. And the times that I wasn't working, I was in a bar, in a pub, and really coping with everything using alcohol or other really unhealthy behaviors. Mm -hmm. And you ended up saying, okay, I'm done with police work. Was that progressive accumulation of enough events that you were just saturated or was there a particular turning point for you? That was a really long process. I say long process, in retrospect, it was really only a couple of years. My whole life was dedicated to being a police officer so that I could retire at 46, 
and live this fairy tale life of happily ever after. I'm 46, I'm retired, I can travel the world and do whatever I want. But after I thought I was gonna live this fairy tale life, right in the middle of this eight years of full-time regular service with the police, is when I had another big traumatic event. And this event, it really was similar to one of the first traumatic events that I had experienced. And as a result of that, I realized I wasn't okay. So through that, I was dealing with a psychologist and quickly after talking with him, he had diagnosed me with PTSD and we had started a journey of healing. And this journey of healing included me going to him every week, sometimes twice a week, and talking about the traumatic events over and over and over. And the therapy he used, it's called prolonged exposure therapy, which was used for veterans of the Vietnam War, where they just talk about it from beginning to end until there's no more emotion around it. Hmm. As a young guy who thought he was invincible, to go and crumble under the weight of his own emotion that was really hard for me. And so I took that and I did it for as long as possible. And at one point I just told my doctor, I have to get back to work. This is not working for me. And so we started a process of graduated return to work, which looked like a couple of years of slowly getting back into uniform, slowly getting back into a police car. My PTSD left me with such profound fear of the job that my partner at one point I was going to put the car in drive and I couldn't even finish and I just sat there in the parking lot. Hmm. My partner tapped on the window and said, are you okay? And I said, I don't think I'm okay. I think I need to leave. Well, So taking that event back to my doctor and saying, I actually really want to be at work, but I don't think I can do this anymore. Started a conversation about what does it look like to take our graduated return to work, which was kind of a mixture of both on and off duty tasks to strictly off-duty for an extended period of time until I could get some level of freedom and peace with what was happening, and then take that gradually over a long period of time. My doctor's idea of a period of time was five or more years. Mm -hmm. My idea of a long period of time was six months to a year. Right. So we really didn't see eye to eye on that, but at this point in my treatment, I just defaulted to him in saying, yeah, you know better than me and I actually don't know myself very well. I worked with the RCMP, I worked with their human resources people and my doctor, and the conclusion was made that I need to retire under a medical disability and I need to leave the force. It was the best, safest thing for me. Mm -hmm. I did try to go back to work several times, but in the nature of the work, plus the city of the work, in Surrey, you can't really hide from danger or trauma or events like that. So I was going back to work really slowly and everybody was supportive, but all of a sudden you go to a, a 911 call that seemingly seems innocent and it turns out to be something horrific. And so I just resigned myself to saying, I had this is not the time for me to continue this job. And having faith at that time, I was talking with my doctor and my pastor and we concluded that it was the best, safest thing for myself, my mental health, and for me to live a really truly full life I couldn't do it as a police officer anymore. Wow. So you mentioned the faith component. Things were turning around for you. How did that piece enter your life? And then this global journey that you found yourself on? Yeah, that's a really great question. I was seeking treatment for my PTSD for about nine or 10 months. In that process, I 
really just let myself go in terms of drinking and being out and about. I ended up meeting a couple of friends. I don't have a strong memory of meeting them. We just sort of met in a group. But at one point, one of the guys said, why don't you come to church with me? I kind of laughed about it and I said, well, okay, we'll see, maybe one day. And out of nowhere, I had this compulsion to message this guy and say, maybe I should go to church tomorrow. What do you think about that? And his reply was, sure, I'll pick you up. You don't have to do anything. I said, what do I wear? Where do I sit? What are the rules? He basically said, <laughs> all you have to do is wear clothes, sit down, stand up and be quiet. Hmm. I said, oh, I can probably do that. So I walked into church the next day and almost immediately I began to weep. I had these feelings come up, these emotions, and I had these tears that I was fighting back. I'm like, this is really weird. I don't understand what's happening to me. I stood up a couple times and I sat down a couple times and then the pastor started his sermon. And the first sermon that I heard, the first time I was ever in a church, was about people that experience trauma and abuse alcohol. Wow. And wow. I couldn't believe it. I was convinced that the entire church was a big TV show and everybody was there to put me on. In that process even, I went back for about three weeks. They continued to share messages about things that I had experienced. And the really interesting part about it for me was my psychologist actually had recommended I go on medication for depression because he said it became quite severe and he couldn't treat me for PTSD anymore. But I outright refused medication. I said, no, I don't wanna do it. If I'm gonna do this treatment, I'm gonna do it the right way. And what I thought was right for me was no medication. About a month after going to church, I went back to my psychologist and he asked me what I had been doing differently. And I said, I'm not doing anything differently. I'm coming to see you, I'm doing this, I'm hanging out with friends, I'm not really doing anything. And he said, well, your depression seems to have gone away. And I said, what do you mean it's gone away? And he goes, I don't think you're depressed anymore. And I really didn't understand what he meant. I was still grappling with this idea of trying to accept that I was depressed. And my doctor asked me, walk me through your last month, your last few weeks. So I told him everything and then I said, on Sunday I've been going to church. And he smiled at me and laughed. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? You're laughing and smiling. He said, I've been a pastor, I've been a seminary professor, and I've been praying for you since I met you that you wow. would go to church and find faith. Oh. It just ruined me and I was in tears in his office and I couldn't believe that other people cared about the inner parts of my life hmm. to that degree. listening to former police officer and human trafficking combatant Zach Koftanoff on today's episode of the 6-8 Culture Podcast. Let's continue as Zach joins us from Cambodia and shares more on how his faith journey has led him to where he finds himself now. And that just launched me forward into being connected to the church and being involved in the church. And a few times I heard testimonies of people traveling. The church I'm involved in is quite active in social justice, both locally, internationally. And so I got connected with their pastor of international mission and said, I want to go to Cambodia. And it didn't happen the first time I thought about it. Thankfully, I wasn't ready at that time. But after that, I ended up in Cambodia, as you had mentioned earlier, where I met you in 2016. And 
It seemed like all the issues I had in my life were suddenly not very big. Not that they weren't important, not that they weren't distressing to me, but I really didn't have it that bad. And I was really, really blessed in my life for my entire life. And that trip, when I went home, I actually left. We went to the Philippines afterwards. I actually left the trip almost a week early because I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't handle seeing the distress and the poverty and the oppression of people in the world. And so I went home and I knew I'd be back, but I really wasn't convinced it'd be anytime soon. That left me really reeling with this battle of who am I, what's happening in the world, and who is this God that I say I believe in. Perspective is amazing, isn't it? And it can really recalibrate all of our questions and our ideas of what we perceive life to be from our small little myopic vantage point where we currently live. I'm actually surprised that you said you went down to the Philippines. I went to the Philippines in 2016 after Cambodia as well. I didn't even know that you had gone there as well. <laughs> so you came back to Canada and what happened after that? Well, that's a whole story in itself. I'll try to make it quick, but I wrestled with one particular event that I saw in Cambodia when we were in a very poor community. And we walked along this river that was full of sewage and garbage and dead animals, etc. You name it, it had it. And this was their water source. And inside one of the houses, I think there was 10 or 20 houses in a row. Inside one of the houses was a young boy who was quite sick, had a really high fever, and was just left alone in this house. The missionaries that were working in that area said, he most likely will die. And I couldn't reconcile how such a relatively minor sickness could lead to someone's death when we had the ability to take them for care. I wrestled with that because I didn't understand maybe the culture and poverty alleviation and areas of missions work and humanitarian work where if we provide for one person but leave out the entire community it actually does more harm and it creates mm -hmm. this dependence of the community no longer needs themselves and they just depend on people who are unreliable right so we were there for a brief brief moment and we're leaving so to create division in the community, to create favoritism in the community would actually divide the community and create deep divisions in families and people, which is more harmful than good. And I did not accept that as a good enough reason. So I came back to Canada and was really, really angry with God and asking, why did this happen? And why could we not do more? And all those types of really almost existential questions. Why did bad things happen? Mm -hmm. If you say you love people, where are you? And all those types of big kind of generalized questions about God and faith. I wrestled with God and initially, if you asked me this question years ago, I would say I was far away from God. Yet about nine months after fighting with God in that moment, I went to my pastor and I said, I don't know what to do. I'm really far away from God. And he asked why. I explained this story to him and he asked me one question. My pastor said to me, do you argue with people you love? And right away I said, yes, of course. When you love somebody and there's conflict, you fight it out, you wrestle it out and you argue and you come to a conclusion of what is right. In that instant, I knew that I actually wasn't very far from God. I just didn't understand him. Mm -hmm. That it was me that was not understanding him, not him who didn't understand me. 
And that process really forced me to look at what I believe and how I should live my life. So you were wrestling through those deeper theological and existential questions. You chatted with your pastor. And what was the impetus to make you say, okay, I'm going back to Cambodia now. And did you have a reason other than just a longing to go back there? Or was there an intention behind it or an organization that you were going back with? Yeah, not really. So after that happened, I was wrestling through those deep questions the same year I was leaving the RCMP. And in that leaving of the RCMP, I was losing a lot of my identity. Where does my worth come from? Where's my value? Right. Trying to figure out what is my life all about? So I decided to get a part-time job for myself. I know that being idle and having lots of free time is not healthy for me and it can lead to a lot of unhealthy things and behaviors. So I got a part-time job in retail working a really, really fun retail job. And I had a lot of fun for six or nine months. And after I went from kind of part-time to full-time, I started realizing I wasn't happy. And I had a really fun job. I had a really great apartment. I had a nice car. I had decent money, lived in a great neighborhood. Everything I could think of that I wanted in my life, I really was able to achieve. But shortly after, I realized none of it was really satisfying my heart. I started to pray really honestly about my faith and what is life about and what's God doing in the world. This world is so big. I've traveled a lot when I was a police officer. I traveled a lot afterwards. And I felt this really deep, almost a calling, but a deep sensation of leave Canada. And I interpreted that as backpack Southeast Asia and see these beautiful countries, meet a lot of people, but also connect with different missionaries and NGOs and see what they're doing. So I began to plan a trip, began to plan a one year around Southeast Asia, all the different countries. I'm a planner in my brain. I kind of just plan, plan, plan. And I bought a whiteboard and books and I bought different colored pens and I was creating this whole chart and design of where I'm gonna go and how long and mapping it all out. But very quickly, I feel like God said to me, I actually didn't ask you to plan it. I just told you to go. In that moment of just going, there was a total loss of control. I wanted to control my life. I wanted to control the trip. I wanted to control who I met, where I went, what I saw, what I did, because it felt safe to me. If I can control all those aspects, then I'll be really safe when I'm gone. So I erased everything except one week of a hotel in Indonesia and a one-way ticket. And I kind of left it there. And I said, well, God, if you want me to do anything else, then you'll tell me. But this is what I'm going to leave it at. He really has a peculiar way of stripping away our identity, stripping away our comforts and our control. Feel like we're the most unsafe and we don't know who we are, but that's exactly where we really will find out who we truly are, who we were made to be. Yeah, even in the things I didn't want to give up, still giving me a choice. But ultimately, I knew what the right choice was. Yeah. I got on the plane on a one-way ticket, met with a couple friends of friends in Indonesia, backpacked a couple of islands. And shortly after, my pastor from my church said, I'm going to be in Cambodia for a short-term trip. Do you want to tag along with us? And I just agreed. I said, sure, I'm going to be there in a month anyway. Why don't I just make it a month early and I'll just come along with you guys. And so I jumped over to Cambodia in October 2018 and got reconnected to some partners from 2016. Mm-hmm. and got reconnected to some organizations and met some new people. And after a few months, I felt this peace, this really comfortable, I'm at home type of feeling. 
continued to sort of work with kids and youth and helping Cambodian nationals develop skills that they said, I want to learn this or this or that. And I said, great, I can help you with that. Really just living life with people that I feel God put in my way. Through that process, ended up meeting a whole bunch more people. And that's how I got connected to Extreme Love. Yeah, I came to Southeast Asia with no plan and not really understanding why or where I was going. Had a brief little backpacking trip, which was really incredible and really fun. But I knew that I was going somewhere else for a bigger reason. That happened to be Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Now, I had only heard of Extreme Love through one of the justice journeys that 10th Church had done. And we had a Cambodia night and ended up doing fundraising. And they had sold some purses and some other things that Extreme Love does on their social enterprise arm. So let's chat a little bit about this organization that you're affiliated with, Extreme Love Ministries. I was on the website last night, and as I was going through it, one of the main statements that they have says, All around the world there are issues of injustice, human trafficking, poverty, genocide, and gender inequalities currently enslave cities, regions, and whole nations. Extreme Love Ministries believes that these injustices occur any place there is a violation of love, and love is, therefore, the solution to bring freedom, healing, and transformation. I'm really impressed with the holistic approach of Extreme Love. Some of the programs that they have include Education Empowerment, Everlasting Love Women, Kids Justice House of Prayer, Bethia's, I hope that I'm pronouncing that right, House, Casework, Lighthouses, Micro Businesses, and Shiloh Fellowship. Under the Casework, it states, we believe that children have rights to all of the following, the right to life, the right to his or her own name and identity, the right to be protected from abuse or exploitation, the right to an education, the right to having their privacy protected, to be raised by or have a relationship with their parents, the right to express their opinions and have these listened to and where appropriate acted upon, the right to play and enjoy culture and art in safety. In the West, these things are a given, and people may just assume that that's how it is everywhere, but it's not. I've seen this all over the world. My first taste of this was in Brazil, in, in one section of the city of Fortaleza. 6,000 kids born without any documentation. They're non-entities, essentially. And just with that, right from the outset, that leads down a very dark path to all kinds of other social maladies. How does Extreme Love's advocacy in these areas work? Can you share with us a little bit about the inner workings of what you're doing there? Yeah, sure. I fell in love with Extreme Love exactly for their name. It is the name that really expresses who they are and what they do. Some of the smaller areas, smaller neighborhoods that are between buildings or between neighborhoods under bridges are people that are rejected, isolated, that the society at large has said, you're not welcome here. Mm. Those are the types of people that we feel we are called to minister to and to live life with. Our advocacy and our work, everything is based around human trafficking, anti-human trafficking work. And lots of these rights that the children have actually play into it. And I can give you one example. right to your own name and identity. There's one girl in our care currently who from a very young age was never given a name and she never spoke. She was actually known in her community 
as fat. They just called her fat. And when we asked about the mother, they said, oh, I don't know, she lives on the street, and we don't have a name for her, and she doesn't speak. Well, the team that was there actually said, why don't we call her Esther, and we'll give her that name. So they introduced themselves to this girl and said, we're going to call you Esther. And the girl responded with a traditional Khmer greeting and said, my name is Esther. She'd never spoken before wow. until that point. And just giving her a name allowed her to be free in her mind and her soul and to interact with people in the way that any other child would want to interact with. So something as simple as giving names to children or us, even if it's only us, calling children by a name that they can associate to gives them freedom from something. And because of relationships that we build in communities, we're able to be really intentional eyes and ears for preventing abuse, exploitation, and fostering a caring support in the home. And since the genocide here, the family unit is still quite fractured. And being able to work with the family at large helps to restore children and families' relationships, which ultimately affects long-term growth in communities and for individuals. Right. Can you touch on some of the other ministries as well, Zach? Like I said, there's Education Empowerment, Everlasting Love Women, there's Kids Justice House of Prayer. There's all these other things that Extreme Love is involved with, which makes me think they're a very holistic organization that's looking at true transformation, not just being present in Cambodia and creating dependency. Yeah, so as you said, holistic is really the best way. We do a whole bunch of prevention. So education empowerment is kids from poor slum communities that are forced to beg or forced to go into prostitution, are forced to work laborious jobs because their family is in poverty and they need financial support. If addictions are in play as well, then the children are forced to work and not go to school. So education empowerment is taking that financial burden away from the family and providing them with a high quality education and a meal, which allows the family to support themselves while also allowing the kid and the children in the home to go to school. One of the really neat features or aspects of education empowerment is we have Kamai tutors that go into the home and tutor the students on their off time, which really gives them the ability to catch up to their peers and their classmates. Mm. And also there's a meal that is provided. So when we started the project and working with the kids, lots of them were struggling with their education and we couldn't figure out why. And after speaking with some of them, we realized that they would not eat for days on end, which was affecting their ability to focus, even going to work at night so that they could eat. But by providing them one meal in a day, they were able to show up and flourish in school and be really successful. And just this year, we have our oldest, our first 18-year-old just graduated high school, which is an absolutely monumental success for this family being the first girl to graduate high school. Mm -hmm. And it's all because she had one meal a day and a tutor. Wow. We have 30, 40 kids in that program and we try to grow it all the time. Really, we've seen great, fruitful things come from it and it seems quite simple. It is simple and it's just something that the kids need just to survive. Yeah, yeah. So that's education empowerment. I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> we also have our Shiloh Fellowship, which is a church plant right in the middle of a slum community. 
When we started this, we were told by other people, missionaries, organizations, they told us to leave and to forget about them because those people were too hard, which fueled the fire behind the fact that we felt like we were in the right place. Hmm. It's been two years. At this point during COVID, when everything was locked down, the community actually came to us and started asking, when are you gonna open again? We miss coming. And we do more than just a church service. It's a church that's tied to poverty, a church that's tied to the poor and to the families. We have a Cambodian pastor that does home visits every day. He's with families and children and mothers and fathers. He sits in their homes and sometimes they're in their homes gambling or doing other things that would be untoward and yep. we maybe wouldn't want people to be doing. But this pastor is so passionate about seeing families restored. And if we can build a family unit in the community and have the community feel like they own this, they own their community, the likelihood of human trafficking, of abuse, of violence decreases dramatically. Hmm. And our Shiloh Fellowship has actually grown to a second location in another slum community. And one of my favorite parts about it is we don't take the community out of their community and say, you need to go to this church now. We bring the church into their community and say, what do you want from this? Mm -hmm. We obviously follow Jesus and we follow the Bible, but we do it in a way that says, what do you guys believe about God? And how can we work together in developing this community? What do you actually need from us? And we help the community develop the community their way. Right. And that's so incredible to see because they take ownership they take responsibility for it and they're actually not dependent on us. We could leave and there might be some vacuum, some gap in between, but they're actually not dependent on us or specifically on foreigners or expats being there. It's mostly Khmer run, which is really, really incredible. It's fantastic. And as in most global South countries, loan rates are through the roof. They're absolutely astronomical. From what I recall, many Cambodian loans average around 10% per month, 120% a year, and those are some of the good ones. You're also involved with micro-businesses there. To what capacity does Extreme Love do this? People that come into our programs and into our care, we will work with them to secure a loan or provide a loan where they can start their own business. If somebody wants to start a coffee shop or start a hair salon, start some type of business where they can be independent and on their own. We will fund it, finance it, and if they pay us back, that's great. If not, that's okay. But it gives people an opportunity to take a risk where they won't be stuck for 20, 30 years paying it back. In that launching of the business, they're not left alone. So we wouldn't give them money and say, good luck, you're on your own. We would say, here's your business plan. Let's walk through it. Here's what it will cost. Let's actually mentor you in this business process so that you can be successful. It's not simply just give you a loan and kick you out the door, give me my money back. It's a process that we can actually see people restored from a background of abuse and trauma, of prostitution, of whatever it may be, and allow them to be fruitfully and gainfully employed that they have their own name on it, their own dignity, and they can make their life the way that they want to. So it's really, really great that they can take full ownership of it. And we just fill in the gaps where they're unable to do that. The knowledge they don't have or the help they need, we just provide that until they're able to do that on their own. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think a lot of people don't really understand the systemic nature of poverty in many global South countries. It's not that there's not a willingness to work. It's the economic empowerment has to take precedence because people can't work. They're shackled due to skyrocketing loan rates and just an inability to have that opportunity to work for themselves. It's a fantastic component to what Extreme Love is doing. What are the lighthouses about, Zach? Yeah, those are really incredible. So we're in approximately, I believe it's 20 communities and we're not in all of them full time. We don't have the capacity for it, but what we do is we'll go into a community and just rent a room. We'll rent a small little space. And I say a room, it means probably a 10 by 10 room where you'd have a bathroom, a kitchen, your living room, your sleeping space, all of that in about a 10 by 10 space. We put a table, a fan, and a couple chairs in there. And we will go into those communities and we'll teach them English. We've done financial literacy. So as you mentioned with debt, we'll teach people about loan rates and savings. We'll do Bible studies. We'll also operate out of there if we do like we did during COVID, if we need to do a food outreach. Sometimes there will be specific communities that are for whatever reason targeted and we'll have a hard time and we've provided food for some communities and we'll operate out of those lighthouses. But what it does is it gives us an opportunity and an ability to go into the community and say, we're here, we live here, we're with you, we're beside you. We're not just removing you from your community for something that we think is better. It's similar to Shiloh Fellowship where we come into their community and try to work with them and develop something with them. Having a lighthouse, it's just a small space in a community where we can gather and we can have a safe place even for kids to come and a safe resting place for our staff and for other community events or participations from the community. That's awesome. Zach, what is your particular role with Extreme Love? Can you share what a day is like for you and what you do in your role with Extreme Love? Yeah, my main role, I oversee the transit monitoring project. What does that mean? I have a team of young Cambodians that go to places of transit. So bus stations, soon to be train stations, we're hoping to grow into the airport, but places where large numbers of people are in transit, mm. coming and going, and sooner than later, hopefully, we'll be leaving the country from there and coming into the country. Just a transit hub, basically, where there's lots of people. And our transit team has been trained by another international NGO. And what we've learned is if we're able to have conversations with people about their travel, how they got there, where they're going, who they're going with, we can actually learn and identify all the risk factors that go into a person being exploited. So what that means is our transit monitors are able to identify a victim of trafficking before they've actually been trafficked and before they've ended up in exploitation. Mm. We've had partnership with other organizations as well that have given us data from people that have been repatriated and asked them questions. How did you leave? How did you get out of the country? How did you end up in a trafficking situation? And through all of that analysis, this other NGO came to us and said, 
hey, we know that people are being trafficked in this manner, in this way, for these reasons, and we believe you can stop it. And we said, how do you do that? And they simply gave us all the information, they trained us, and we've been able to intercept victims of trafficking before they've actually been exploited or faced trauma. We do the holistic side at Extreme Love of totally preventing it where we're able. We also have the rescue and aftercare of when people leave exploitation, they leave slavery, they leave prostitution, but in the middle, they have to travel somewhere. So from a community, just last week, the team here spoke with a young girl. She was 16 years old. Her family had sold her to a rich female, and this woman was taking her on a bus to another community. After the team had conversations with them, the older woman and the younger woman, they actually learned that there was a lot of lying happening. And a lot of the information wasn't true or we couldn't prove it, which leads us to believe that the younger girl was being trafficked. We did a whole investigation and actually learned that the woman was somebody well known in the community that takes young girls from the community and takes them away from their families. Our team was able to intercept the victim of trafficking before she'd actually been exploited. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you work collaboratively with any other NGOs in the region? There's a network here called Chabdai. Right. A large network of organizations. We also work with an organization that has a series of children's homes for youth where we can place children. We also will work really with anybody. We've got connections with churches. All of our expats go to churches and our Khmer staff all go to church. So we work with churches very closely. But essentially, we do things where other people don't do things. We don't want to step on people's toes and go in communities where other people are. And so if we can identify what we're doing well and what other people are doing well, then together we basically do both of those things well for the community. Zach, what makes your story go from an I wish I could do something like that to an I'm really doing this in my life? So many of us think to ourselves, I really wish I was living my life with greater purpose and intention. You turn that corner. A lot of us don't get to that place. A lot of us would prefer to sit in the audience seat and living that life that Solzhenitsyn referred to earlier, just drowning in distraction. What made you just say, I need to number my days and really make this count? That question is a very good question. It's really hard to answer. One thing that I was afraid of was trying to understand who am I and what can I actually do? I don't have a university degree. I did plenty of training and skills training with the RCMP and I've always been highly relational and dealing with people and preferring relationships over just doing a project and seeing if I can make a positive statistic out of some kind of task. I think there's a place to be able to measure something, but for me, that always took a back seat and I didn't want to do anything where all I was doing was keeping track and proving mm -hmm. over and over that what I was doing was valuable. And the other half is like I mentioned, I just felt woefully unprepared to do something like this. I believe it was when God really took control away from me and said, you go and let me be God. Once I kind of accepted that, at times I have to let him do that again and re-give up control to him. 
After I started really understanding that God doesn't need me for him to still be God, I was able to just build relationship with people. And at the end of the day, I had to take a leap of faith and say, I am just going to do what I know I'm good at, which is talking to people and building relationship. And everything else that comes from it won't be of my own effort. It will be God working through me, God working through other people, and me just saying yes to the things that he puts in front of me that I can somehow fumble my way through and walk into something that turns out to be really great. Yeah, you put it so well. And we get to hear the children in the background. I don't know if you're near a school right now. What time is it in Cambodia right now? It is 10.30 in the morning. Yeah. We have about 15 kids that come here every day. This is our office, not the kids. We have a kid's house as well, but this is our office. And in our office, we have women that have been rescued and have left prostitution and exploitive backgrounds. And their children come here to be cared for and we do education and classes with them while their mothers are being cared for. So. They're running around and they're playing a game right now, I think. So. Yeah, what a beautiful, beautiful sound to have in the background. You mentioned about the women. One of the projects that you have is called Everlasting Love Women. Is that the social enterprise arm of Extreme Love? Yeah, yeah, that was the first one. We've now got three Everlasting Love Women. They create a product that's really incredible. You mentioned it earlier at my church. These women are amazing. They've come from some really terrible backgrounds and really awful circumstances of what has been done to them and what they've experienced. Their ability to seek healing, to seek restoration for themselves and for their kids, it's not an easy process. There's a huge societal and cultural barrier, you could say a cultural wall that they have to climb over and break through. And they're tenacious in pursuing this. And so they make products where they get to design it, they get to name it, they pray over it, and it tells a story of their life. The product is all handmade and it's not done in a way that's done for profit and done for speed. These ladies go upstairs and they're praying over their products and the value and the craftsmanship and the hard work the blood, sweat, and tears that they put into these products tells the world their story of coming from these tattered pieces of fabric being remade into something beautiful and valuable. Mm. And they are amazing. <laughs> well, I remember seeing some of these products and you're right, the craftsmanship is phenomenal. Just beautiful, beautiful pieces. And people can find that there on the website as well. Zach, if people are interested in partnering with you and the work you're doing in Cambodia, how can they do it? And what are some of your greatest needs? Yeah, for us right now, in a really big period of transition in lots of ways, our greatest need is prayer. Anybody that is willing and able or called to pray for us, please be praying for us. There's really, really big needs that really we could throw money at and it would maybe alleviate some of it. But our growth is in growing capacity in staff and growing our ability to walk alongside people that have a lot of needs right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean needs in terms of emotional care, spiritual care, those types of needs. So praying for us is our highest need. If there is a feeling of wanting to give back financially, 
definitely we can use financial support in growing our next two businesses that we're opening and growing the organization. We've just moved into a new kid's house for our rescued children and we're going to be almost able to double our capacity there, which will be amazing. So we'll need financial assistance there. And there's definitely needs for finances everywhere. Other than those, we also love to host teams. We have a staff member here who puts together trips and puts together short-term trips and small teams, big teams. And we tour them through the city, tour them through our projects, meet our kids, meet our community members. And at this point, the relationships we have with community members, they love to show their community, to host teams, to host people, and really have people from other countries experience the love that they've received and to pour that back out into teams. Hmm. It's challenging right now with some of the restrictions, but we're definitely still open to teams and we're actually looking at doing a virtual justice journey, a virtual tour as well. So we'll be filming that in the future. Oh, that's great. Well, before we wrap up, is there any final words or anything that you'd like to share, Zach? Yeah, if there's anything, what's just bouncing around in my head right now is just what you said about we like to be comfortable and maybe there's someone with a hesitation of I can't do that. But I know several people in this country now that come here and have come here with that same mindset of I don't know what I can do or provide. And they end up being incredible advocates for the oppressed and for the poor. Mm. And more than the projects that we can start, more than the food we can give, more than all of these things, these material things that we can give people, when we sit down and have a relationship and share a meal together, go for a walk together, or just sit in a room together, loving a person in the middle of their brokenness is the greatest thing we've been able to give someone. So if there's anybody that thinks, I can't do that, if you're able to sit on a chair in the same room with another person, then you can definitely do this. Wow, thank you for sharing that. Wise words from Zach Koftanoff, who represents Extreme Love Ministries. To discover much more about Extreme Love's fantastic work, please go to their website at extremelove.com. That's extremelove.com. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. It's just been a real pleasure to host you on today's episode of the 6 Culture Podcast. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for sharing your time with the 6-8 Culture Podcast, where we share stories of personal transformation that are making our world a more just, kind, and humble place. Join us for our next session of Impacting Stories in 6-8 Culture. This is Rob McKinley signing out with a reminder for us all to act justly, to be kind, and to walk humbly.